Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlock. This week's tale opens on a Hooverville, a makeshift village of the dispossessed. All in attendance hit hard by the Great Depression of 1929. The location? A swampy, muddy field at Anacostia Flats near downtown Washington, D.C. It is July 17, 1932. A town on a mission, this camp holds 10,000 American military veterans. They've gathered together under the leadership of one Walter Waters, a former sergeant from Portland, Oregon, to demand the government keep a promise made to them years ago. They hail from all across the USA, many having hiked the length or breadth of the country to be there. Others have freight hop boxcars like characters in a Steinbeck novel. They're mostly veterans of the First World War, all are members of the Bonus Army. As fighting men, they were promised a sizable bonus for their part in World War I. But when the bill came due in 1924, the government deferred payment. Though the Great Depression was still a few years off, the boom which preceded it was still a year away and money was tight. The veterans would have to make do with promissory notes to the amount agreed plus compound interest, to be paid in 1945. This seemed reasonable to many of the time, but now, with one in every four Americans jobless, millions homeless, close to half the nation's banks insolvent, their money was needed more than ever. The men of the Bonus Army were tough and resourceful, but they were struggling, often in jobs hard hit and hit early by the Depression. And besides, many have felt they'd done their bit and then some. They made the world safe for democracy and capitalism. And in their time of greatest need, was it really too much to ask for democracy and capitalism to come through for them and hand over the $2 billion collectively owed them? Some politicians listened. A bill was introduced and passed through Congress to grant the men an early payout. But then President Herbert Hoover threatened, if it went through, he would use his powers to veto it immediately. He didn't need to. The Senate did the dirty work for him. The Bonus Army was tired, dejected, and much in need of an inspirational leader to revive their spirits. On the podium on July 17th, one such leader, Major General Smedley Butler. Butler was a retired Marine Major General, with one of the more impressive records in Marine history. A soldier's general, he spent much of his career fighting alongside the men. He was well known to some as a guy who always had the soldiers' backs. A guy who would never ask anyone to do something he wasn't willing to do himself. On retirement, Butler joined the public speaking circuits and was a vocal advocate for soldiers' rights. The Bonus Army asked him, as an ally, if he would come to Anacostia Flats and speak with the men. He gladly obliged. On stage, a worked-up butler addressed the men in his gruff, booming voice that belied his small, wiry frame. Makes me so damn mad a whole lot of people. 
speak of you as tramps. By God, they didn't speak of you as tramps in 1917 and 18. He exclaimed, in response to media commentary, the men were an unkempt rabble. Let me tell you something. I've been all over the world. I've seen you fellows on the streets in Washington. There isn't this well-behaved group of citizens in the world that's sitting right in this camp. Furthermore, he called on the men to remain peaceful. Don't make any mistake about it. You've got the sympathy of the American people. Now, don't you lose it. He called on the Bonus Army to keep it together and continue their fight for the bonus. If they lost this battle, don't despair. They hadn't lost the war. Sorry all, I couldn't find footage of this bit to sample, so you get me. I ran for the Senate on a bonus ticket and got the hell beat out of me. Now many of these men were considering a free train ride home, a government bribe aimed at thinning out the crowd. The army would then swoop in and break up the camps. No doubt Butler knew this. Knowing many had a home to return to and would take that ticket, he advised, And when you go to the polls, Two weeks later, the army did break up the camps. Sent in by General Douglas MacArthur, there was an ugly, messy, tear-gas-filled stoush. Cavalry officers, men with bayonets, even six tanks and men with machine guns were rolled out to move the unarmed protesters, many of whom had nowhere else to go at this point. Two protesters from the Bonus Army were killed. The Bonus Army did continue their fight, however, and in November 1932, the wider voting public, sick and tired of President Hoover's callous, ineffectual management of the Depression, emphatically voted for the Democrat, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. In his first hundred days, FDR brought in a raft of policies to lift the economy out of the doldrums. Given multi-letter acronyms, some referred to his plans as alphabet soup, One policy, and this is very pertinent to our tale, was to uncouple paper money from the gold standard. Under the gold standard, all money must be backed by an equivalent sum in gold. By dumping this, moving the economy towards fiat money, money was realigned more as a current reflection of the expected future value of the wider economy. Politicians could much more easily speculate on a brighter future under fiat money. The term, a riff for the Latin, fiat lux, let there be light. One could proclaim, let there be money, and treasury could print the money needed to pay workers to literally rebuild the nation. Amid the wide-ranging public works, vast infrastructure projects kicked off, many of which paid huge future dividends. Projects like freeways, schools, city halls, wastewater plants, even the Hoover Dam, started prior to Roosevelt's New Deal but completed on New Deal funding, owed a lot to FDR's plans. People were suddenly working and paying taxes and spending, and this created virtuous circles. The USA would be on its way towards resuscitating the nation's economy, by the eve of World War II. Now a move from the gold standard was in no small part also meant to put the brakes on rich Americans, or investors in the American economy, suddenly exchanging all their paper money for gold, as is often the case in times of recession, and then moving that wealth offshore for the foreseeable future. 
And as far as the rich were concerned, there was another downside to this plan. It drove inflation, lowering the value of each solitary dollar. This was a threat to anyone still wealthy enough to have millions of dollars in cash stored away somewhere. How would America's wealthiest citizens react to this? Well, we'll come to that, but for now, back to Smedley Butler. On the morning of July 1st, 1933, General Butler took a phone call from an acquaintance at the American Legion, a large serviceman's organization that, unlike the Bonus Army, regularly took the businessman's side. The Legionnaires were often used as strike breakers in industrial actions. The call was to advise a couple of war veterans from the Legion were on their way to meet with him. Five hours later, a chauffeur-driven limousine pulled up outside. Two well-dressed men got out. These men were Bill Doyle, commander of the Massachusetts Division, and Gerald Maguire, former commander of the Connecticut chapter. And by day, bondbroker on Wall Street. Butler was wary of the Legionnaires, but always happy to give any old soldier a hearing. He warmly welcomed the men in. After some small talk on adventures and war wounds, the visitors got to their point. They represented a shadowy group of veterans who were tired of the Legion's leadership. They hoped to roll them in the upcoming convention in Chicago and needed Butler's help. They asked Medley to take to the stage at the convention and call for the ouster of the royal family as they referred to the leadership. Though no fan of the royal family, Butler had no interest whatsoever in getting involved. It was none of his business who ran the Legion. The two men counted. Would he at least attend as an honoured guest? Well, not an honoured guest exactly. Um, they could sneak him in as a delegate from Hawaii. Again he demurred. The two men returned to their limo and left. This would be far from the last time they would meet, Maguire especially. A month later they returned to the Butler household with a new plan. Butler could gather 300 Legionnaire friends of his, and then travel to Chicago by train. These men would then holler for Butler till the royal family had to let him speak. The men even had a written speech for the general to deliver. Butler pointed out most of his friends in the Legion didn't have the money for a ticket to Chicago. The men replied they had sufficient funds to pay for that showing Butler proof of a $100,000 operational budget. Now Smedley Butler was a man with a ferocious temper, and he was a hair's breadth from letting rip at these men, but he was also curious as to their end game. So playing a call, he told the men he'd think about it. He could be interested in their scheme, but needed to know more before he could commit himself. Once Doyle and Maguire left, Butler read through the speech. It demanded the Legion lobby government for a return to the gold standard. Their reasoning? Bonus payments should be backed by something more tangible than fiat money. We'll come back to this in a second. The first, who was Smedley Butler? Smedley Darlington Butler was born on July 30th, 1881, to a distinguished, largely pacifist Quaker family. I say largely as both grandfathers fought for the Union Army in the American Civil War. 
His family had previously been active in the fight against slavery in the Underground Railway Network, helping runaway slaves to freedom. And when the war broke out, they felt they must play their part. His family were politically active and influential, his lineage including congressmen. His own father, Thomas Butler, was one such politician. As a child, Smedley dreamt of becoming a soldier. Age 12, he joined up with the Boys Brigade, giving him at least some sense of military life. The battleship USS Maine exploding in Havana Harbor on February 15, 1898, gave Smedley the reason he needed to sign up. Prior to the Maine incident, a war of independence between Cuba and their colonizers, Spain, had been in full swing for several years. The Maine was stationed in the harbor to protect American business interests in Cuba. A boiler had malfunctioned, causing a catastrophic explosion, but speculation ran rife the Spanish had blown the ship up. A large number of Americans were livid with Spain and called for a declaration of war. The politicians soon obliged. Many young men, including a 16-year-old Smedley Butler, enrolled in the armed forces to fight the Spanish. Butler signed on as a Marine. Cutting his teeth in Cuba, he returned home in 1899. Promoted to lieutenant, he was then deployed to the Philippines, where he led a battalion. This war was a continuation of the war with Spain, just taking part in another of their colonies. Showing the kind of daring do that would later become his trademark, he led an assault on the heavily armed stronghold of Nocoleta, battling through a rain of heavy gunfire to capture the enemy base. In his downtime, he had a massive tattoo of the Marine Corps emblem, tattooed onto his chest, which in turn made him deathly ill as the tattooist had used a dirty needle. From the Philippines, Butler fought alongside a multinational peacekeeping force against the Boxer Rebellion in China. America, of course, had business interests in China that needed protection, a constant of Butler's service. One of the first missions was to protect an American compound near Tientsin against 50,000 boxers. He was in charge of a considerably smaller force. At one point in the conflict, he risked his own life by weaving through enemy gunfire to rescue an injured Marine private. Remarkably, the Marines broke the siege and sent the boxers running. He was shot in the thigh himself by a stray bullet while taking out a high-walled boxer compound. But he fought through the injury. While healing from the battle, he was promoted to captain. He went on to fight in Peking, his leg injury not yet fully healed. In 1902, Butler was in Panama. In 1903, a revolution erupted in Honduras, and Butler was sent in to protect America's banana exporters. He continued to serve with distinction, and in 1908 was promoted to major. 1909 saw him stationed again in Panama, then Nicaragua, both hotspots with American business interests. In the latter mission, he protected a highly unpopular government, 
who had seized power but also had the virtue of being friendly to American business. One tale from Nicaragua. In 1912, Major Butler was sent in to liberate a captured railway line with a crew of just 100 men. The train was being guarded by a much larger force. Rather than risk being outgunned, Butler turned to asymmetrical warfare. Walking towards the rebel forces with two cloth sacks in hand, he demanded the rebels hand the train over to him. He told the rebels if anyone tried to stop him taking the train, he was carrying two bags full of dynamite. Get in his way, they would all be blown to kingdom come. His bluff worked. He briefly rose to governor of the district of Granada in Nicaragua. This mission sat particularly uncomfortably with Butler. He knew this time, in no uncertain terms. The majority of the population detested the conservative government of Adolfo Diaz. He was becoming increasingly aware of his role, in his own words. A high-class muscle man for big business. A racketeer. A gangster for capitalism. Later that year, he was ordered to, and successfully carried through, the rigging of a governmental election in Diaz's favor. In 1914, Butler was sent to Mexico. He served in the midst of a rebellion, both as spy, carrying out reconnaissance work, and as a soldier. By 1915, he was stationed in Haiti. Germany had economic interests in the island nation. At an unsettled time in which four regimes ruled that year alone, Washington DC worried if a revolution broke out, Germany would swoop in and establish a naval base. The Marines were sent in to protect the American sphere of influence and restore order. It was coincidental American business interests, banks particularly, had huge amounts of money tied up in the nation. Well, Butler was sent after the Caicos, precursors of Papa Doc de Valier's Tontons Makut. At times, the Marines were outnumbered 20 to 1, but Butler's Marines prevailed, battling through fields of sugarcane and taking out compounds in the middle of the night. Butler was put in charge of the Haitian police force for a time, a role he reprised in the 1920s as the police chief of Philadelphia. By 1916, now Lieutenant Colonel Butler, he became increasingly worried of his own role in other nations' affairs. Again, to quote Butler, War is a racket in which the profits are reckoned in dollars, and the losses in lives. When the USA entered the First World War, Butler begged to be sent. After much lobbying, he was sent, but to Camp Pontanism, a French camp which most American soldiers came through and went. Promoted to general, for once he was not in a combat role, but he did have responsibility for some strategically important, and at the time poorly maintained real estate. Butler soon had the camp orderly, and won the respect to many of the soldiers passing through the camp. The First World War seemed futile to the seasoned warrior. He later wrote, what on earth are these American boys doing, getting wounded and killed and buried in France? Smedley Butler served for some time post-war. In 1927, he was stationed in China, as that nation fell apart amid battling warlords. 
He was sent into Shanghai to protect the interests of the Standard Oil Corporation. All up, he saw action in 11 countries, in excess of 120 battles or armed conflicts. Back home by 1930, people were starting to question just what the Marines had been doing in some of these occupations in Central and South America. Butler was near retirement, but he shed some light on these activities. The 1912 interference in a Honduran election top of his list. The most awarded soldier in American history in his own time. He had quite a reputation to preserve, but he was increasingly willing to tarnish that reputation if it meant keeping future Marines safe from being sent into conflict for the sole benefit of big business. By the early 1930s, Smedley Butler was a popular advocate of soldiers' rights and a notable anti-war campaigner. In 1931, he was passed over for the top position in the Marine Corps, then slipped up at a speaking engagement. Speaking of the need to still keep a defence force for protection against foreign invaders, he shared a story of a friend's armoured car ride with Benito Mussolini. The two men were flying through the Italian countryside in an armoured car at 70 miles per hour. Going through one settlement, Mussolini's car ran straight over a young child. It didn't even attempt to brake, let alone stop to check on the child. Absolutely horrified, Butler's friend let out a scream, only to be lectured by Mussolini. The child was, after all, only one life, and the affairs of the state could not be stopped by one life. Smedley Butler wanted a far less interventionist military. But as long as monsters like Mussolini existed, the USA had to keep a defence force. The speech caused an international incident. Italy demanded Butler be court-martialed. He was arrested and charged with conduct unbecoming his position. The public were furious over Butler's arrest. A wave of anti-Italian sentiment swept through the country. Mussolini, shocked by the reaction, begged authorities to drop all charges against Butler. Mussolini's intervention did not kill the story dead, as he'd hoped. Butler's friend, the journalist Cornelius Vanderbilt, confirmed the tale, adding Mussolini patted his knee immediately after, stating, Never look back, Mr. Vanderbilt. Always look ahead in life. As the Great Depression bit, Citizen Butler, a lifelong Republican, gave his support to the Democrat, Roosevelt. This was not just at the ballot box, but through public speaking. In one speech, he proclaimed himself a member of the Hoover for ex-President League. Whether Butler would have done this unprompted is mere speculation. The fact is, the Roosevelt Republican Organization, a political pressure group something akin to the Lincoln Project in Trump's time, approached him for support and he was happy to oblige him. Right, we really should rejoin Butler in 1933, as he tours the nation, giving public speeches. As an influential man, a man with the ear of an army's worth of dispossessed soldiers, a man who recently took a public stand against a sitting president, Smedley Butler appeared worthy of pursuit to Gerald Maguire and to his masters. They had a particular interest in winning over an army's worth of soldiers. And who else could they call on for that? Douglas MacArthur? 
He'd ordered the attack on the Bonus Army, so was persona non grata at the time. Throughout the remainder of 1933, Maguire pursued Butler at every opportunity. In September, while Butler was in Newark, New Jersey, on a speaking engagement, Maguire dropped by his hotel room. When Butler asked him, was there any real money behind this shadowy organization, Maguire threw $18,000 in $1,000 notes on the bed. Butler demanded he pick the money back up immediately. Was he trying to get him arrested? The moment he tried to do anything with any of those $1,000 notes, he'd leave a traceable footprint tying him to the scheme. Maguire countered he could arrange smaller denominations. Moving forwards, Butler advised him, he would only speak to the backers directly. Arrangements were made for a face-to-face meeting in Chicago with Robert Sterling Clark, a millionaire banker and heir of a founder of the Singer Sewing Machine Company. Butler knew Clark as it happened. As a young man, Clark was a Marine lieutenant who fought alongside Butler in the Boxer Campaign. The two men spoke on the phone, then met face-to-face at Butler's house. In their talk, Clark let slip the writer behind the gold standard speech was none other than John W. Davis. Davis had been a Solicitor General for Democratic President Woodrow Wilson from 1913 to 1918. After a brief stint as Ambassador to Britain, he ran as the Democratic nominee for President in 1924. As a private citizen, Davis returned to the law, defending big business interests. But now remembered, if remembered at all, as the guy who argued against school desegregation in the landmark Brown versus Board of Education case. He was then the head counsel for the mogul J.P. Morgan. As they talked in his study, Butler challenged Clark head on. This speech has very little to do with soldiers getting their bonus. It felt like another racket, another big business plot. What was his interest in all this? Clark briefly hesitated, took in a deep breath, then honestly answered. He was a wealthy man with a $30 million fortune to think about. The movement away from the gold standard was driving up inflation, which was massively devaluing his fortune. Clark was utterly convinced Roosevelt would beggar him and his kind and was willing to spend half of his fortune to force the country back onto the gold standard. But why would Roosevelt give in to pressure if a group of old soldiers started making some noise over this? Clark answered Roosevelt was a blue blood like him. He had his class loyalties to protect after all, and would bow to pressure given half a chance. And when he did, they, the blue bloods, would descend to offer their support and all would be forgiven. Butler told Clark he wouldn't let veterans be used to undermine democracy. He wanted no part in the scheme. Clark countered. Butler was working because he had to. All his years of service may have brought a wealth of experience, but no great financial fortune. Butler had a large mortgage still to pay and he knew it. If Smedley was willing to do this for them, the cabal would pay his mortgage for him. Butler was enraged and though he knew he should stick to the plan, just keep on collecting evidence on these people. He absolutely lost it with Clark, hollering at him to get out, go into the hallway, go look at all those mementos of his long career, all on display out there. 
They were rewards for loyalty to his nation and to poor people and to his people, and he would not risk his reputation over that for anything. Minutes later, Clark sheepishly returned and asked if he could use Butler's phone. He made a phone call to Maguire to advise him to go with Plan B. In Chicago, the royal family would be inundated with telegrams, demanding they back a return to the gold standard. He then left. Days later, Butler read in the papers. They indeed had been inundated with such telegrams. He may have been excused if he thought that this was the last he'd hear of this shadowy cabal. But then what kind of tale would that make? Sorry, all this will have to be a two-parter. Readers, podcast listeners, my own slowly growing bonus army. Please tune in in two weeks' time and we'll conclude this tale. Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes, and get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice. Share the episode, as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.